0: Well, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1 this evening. You know, with the new year, new beginning, I can't think of anything that I'd rather focus my attention on than what Pastor Brian talked about this morning in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation. And as we looked and observed the Lord's table this morning and remembered, I can't think of anything else that I'd rather be reminded of and look into than Christ's work on the cross. And that's where we're going to be, that's what brings us to Leviticus this evening, because that's what we're going to be studying the work that Christ did on the cross. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to be reading the first. Four verses to begin with. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. I got more than one comment about uh, this evening's title. This evening is called Body, Blood, and Bowels, Reflections on the Atonement. And I hope this evening that after we, uh, we spend some time in Scripture, that you would love the word atonement, and you would love what the body and the blood and the bowels of the sacrifice stands for and reminds us of what Christ did on his atoning work on the cross as much as I do. As I was going over this section, I'm falling more and more in love with Jesus, realizing what he did. I think sometimes I take for granted and I just, I throw out words like the cross. This evening we're going to look at the cross as a jewel with several different sides. See several different things that was accomplished on the cross. I love how this chapter starts out here. You get this picture of the tabernacle and God is in the Holy of Holies and he calls out, with an invitation to Moses. And he says, if anybody wants to come and come boldly before the throne, as Pastor Jeremy reminded us in Hebrews, then here is what he must do. And the end of chapter 4 says he must make atonement. I love that word, atonement. It's not just a fancy word. It's, it's a word that is packed Some of the other words that you may be reminded of when you hear the word atonement is payment or appeasement or propitiation, sacrifice. One man called it the great exchange, substitution, great love. Jesus said, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And then finally, the work of Christ on the cross. All these words are wrapped up in that word atonement, the cross. I believe the cross stands, as the Bible presents it, as the most important event in all of existence. Think about it. If there was no cross, you would have no existence. How is that so? because god justly as soon as mankind sinned would rightly be able to wash mankind and blot him out but for the cross but for the plan that god had the whole way back revelation 13 says before the foundations of the earth it was the plan the cross was always the plan it's not compensation it's not it's not plan b Revelations 5 says that the cross stands as a memorial into the future, eternally. We will remember the cross the whole way eternity past to the whole way eternity the cross stands there. Up until 2,000 years ago, 1 Peter 1.12 says that uh, the cross was a mystery. Even the angels didn't know what was going on. What would God do? Imagine, think about their memory. You see, there was one other offense before Adam's offense, and that was Lucifer. Do you remember he fell? And what was the consequences? He was cast out of heaven, and there was no atonement made for him. There was no second chance. And then right after that, we read in Genesis 3 that man falls. And I wonder what the angels were thinking, what God is going to do. And they watch God make a covering. And he covers up Adam and Eve's shameful naked bodies. And then the flood comes and man turns away from God. And God provides an ark. And then God provides a tabernacle and sacrifices so that man can make atonement and draw near to Him. And the prophets proclaim that there's coming a Redeemer, there's coming a Messiah, and then mystery of mysteries, what happens? It's God. The Rescuer, the Redeemer is God Himself, but He comes so unexpectedly, He comes as a man, as one of His creation I wonder if that was the last thing the angels ever expected. As they watch Christ, Jesus, as a baby, and the God who knows all had to learn how to talk. That blows my mind. The God who had everything at his dispense got hungry Psalm says that God never grows tired and he never sleeps. He doesn't need to. And Jesus needed to sleep. And the angels watch as Jesus goes to the Jews and the Jews reject him. And then they condemn him to die. And I imagine all of the heavenlies are watching and waiting for Jesus to say the word... All you have to do, Jesus, is say the word, and we will wipe out mankind. I think it was 12 legion exactly that Jesus says is he could have called. They were waiting. And then God does the totally what is unexpected. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he kills himself. The father crushes the son. And the angels watch. As Christ dies on the cross, and he calls out, it is finished, the earth grows dark, it shakes, the temple is torn in two. What just happened? The temple curtain is torn in two. Atonement has been made. A beautiful thing for mankind. Atonement. The word atonement means to purge away like water, to reconcile or to forgive, to pacify, or here's an interesting word, to pitch or to cover over. A good illustration of this is God told Noah, Noah, I want you to take the ark and I want you to cover it. I want you to cover it with pitch pitch would be a resin that was over the ark that made it floodproof that made it waterproof that made it wrathproof so that it could go through the flood that's what atonement does for us Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, like a blanket that wraps over us. I heard one man say, the Christian is wrapped in the wounds of Christ, shielded from the wrath of God. That is a beautiful illustration of what Christ's atoning work. And so that God no longer sees me, but he sees what his son did. He's made atonement. Hebrews 10 says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very image of the things. That's going to um, provide a, a background for where we're going to, for our study this evening. Leviticus in the law is a shadow and a copy of the good things that God is going to do through his son. He hasn't done them yet when the book of Leviticus was written but he's going to. It reminds me of a man who carries a a picture of his wife in his wallet. And every time he takes that picture out, he's reminded exactly of what, or at least a good idea of what she looks like. He's reminded also that they're not together right now, but they will be. And that's the law. The law is a reminder of what Christ would do, and will do, but he, has, but he hadn't done it yet. But he's going to. It's a shadow and a copy of the things to come. That's what the law is. Um, there are several different types of sacrifices. There's burnt, there's a burnt sacrifice, there's a grain sacrifice, a peace sacrifice, a sin, and a guilt sacrifice. And all of them differ slightly, but most of them have the same basic pattern. And I want to look at you, I want to look this evening at three different parts of the sacrifice and then reflect on the cross. The first is the blood. And we're going to be reminded that the cross was a substitute, a sacrifice that was a substitute. Secondly, we're going to look at the body of the sacrifice, how it was cut up, and taken out, and we're going to be reminded that the cross was a scandal. Thirdly, we're going to look at the bowels of the sacrifice, and we're going to be reminded that the cross was sacred. Why are we going to be looking at this? Because this is what God is illustrating for what His Son has done. Let's look at Leviticus 1.3. If his offering is a burnt, a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. If you were going to offer a sacrifice, it had to come from your herd. It had to, you had to have purchased it. You had to have raised it. And it couldn't have been a three-legged lamb. It couldn't have been a lamb who walked with a limp. It had to be your best. It had to be without blemish. Why is that? Because God is holy, and he deserves our best. We don't bring the leftovers before the Lord. He gets the best and the first of the sacrifice. Secondly, we're reminded that um, the sacrifice was costly. This lamb or this bull or this goat could have been sold for probably more than any of the others in the herd, but it was going to be offered to God. These are the things that a man had to consider as he brought something to the sacrifice. This is what led up to it. And what we see in Jesus Christ and what we're reminded of is that Christ was a completely and a perfect sacrifice Very costly. Jeremy read this evening, Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus was on the earth, he was tried and tempted in every way. And in every way, he was found to be a perfect and a blameless sacrifice. I think it's ironic that if you were to bring a sacrifice before the priest, he would have to inspect it and say, Yep, that's a good lamb. This lamb will do. It's without blemish, and it's worthy of a sacrifice. And Jesus, as he stood before the priests, you know what they found wrong with Jesus? They couldn't find anything wrong. They had to make something up. He was without blame. Guiltless, a perfect sacrifice, exactly what God required. The second thing that led up to the sacrifice is that, well. Let's read in um, Leviticus one four. It says, "Now this is speaking about the man who has brought the sacrifice before the temple." He says, "Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering." And it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. What's going on here is a man who had guilt of sin would take his animal before the priest, and once it was inspected, he would put his hands on the head of that animal, signifying that I have guilt, I've done wrong. And my blame, my guilty conscience goes on this animal, and this animal will suffer vicariously, vicarious, in place of me, on my behalf, on this animal. So whatever happens to this animal, it should happen to me. I'd like to read to you Isaiah 53. I want you to consider the cross and Christ as the sacrifice. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Listen to this part of the verse. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man, that's amazing. Just like that man put his hands on that bull and said, this bull will suffer in my place. God put his hand on the son And he said, my son suffers in your place and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Believer, Christ has taken your guilt, he's taken your sin upon himself and he brings it to the sacrifice. So, let's continue. All of the... um, the preliminary work is done. Leviticus 1.5 says, He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests and Aaron's son. And he shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. I was talking to a fellow before the service and he was saying, you know, There's so many things that we don't like to think about. We try to shield ourselves from. This is one of them. Make no mistake of it. This was a gruesome, bloody, brutal death. They would take this animal, and I'm not exactly sure how they would hold the animal down, whether they would tie him down, whether they would... Put him in a chute or a pen. I don't know. I didn't look into that. But the high priest would take a knife and he would slit the animal's throat. And the animal would writhe and kick in his last few minutes of life. And the blood would pour out. And the priests would have a pan and they would catch it. And they were given specific instructions of what to do with that blood as it ran out of the dying animal, the blood was never to be drank. The goat worshipers drank the blood. And God says, you never drink the blood. The blood was never to be burned up. It was to be poured out. And the blood was to be kept in the temple. It was to be collected. It was to be sprinkled and flicked. They'd put it on their finger and they'd flick it at the at the, the temple curtain. And the remainder of the blood they would take and they would pour it around the offering. Can you imagine what the priest would have looked like? In his, I imagine, a white robe. This is a brutal, bloody, gruesome event. Critics of Christianity so many times will say, you know, Christians, Christianity is a, a, a brutal, violent religion. And as we stand and we look at this altar, this sacrifice, I would have to agree with you. And critics would use that, because it is brutal, and because it is gross, and because the very center of Christianity is a cross, I want no part of that. I'd like to consider that with you this evening a little bit, because I think it would be good, one, for us to be able to give an answer of why Christianity celebrates a death. And two, I believe it's good for you to know, just in your own self, why It is so bloody. So why must blood be spilt? Why couldn't we just have paid money? Wouldn't that have been been nice? It worked other places in the law. If I would have stole from one of you, if I'd have taken something from you, the law says I should repay you and add one-fifth. Justice has been served. But that doesn't work here. God doesn't want that in a fifth. He wants life's blood. Why? I get two verses when I ask people that question. The first one, Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's a good answer, but why? That's true, but why? Why does God demand blood? Here's the second one. Leviticus 17:11 For the life is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls and that is true but why does God demand blood why did Christ have to die And his blood to have been poured out. Why did the sacrifice, did they take all the effort to kill an animal and then to collect its blood? Why is that? I think the Bible gives a very good answer. I think we can start to look at it by looking at Genesis 9, 6. And it says, Whoever sheds a man's blood by man his blood shall be shed. You see, if I were to murder somebody and to take their life, it would be just and right for me to forfeit my life. Equal compensation. If I shed a man's blood, justice must be served. My blood should be shed. Right? So here's the question. If God demands blood, if he demands the justice of a murderer, then who's the murderer? Who killed? You did. And I did. All right, Andy. Who did we murder? God. What? What are you talking about? Let me explain to you. Scripture lays this out like this. 1 John 3:15 The one hating his brother, the one hating is a murderer, not the one who killed him, but the one hating is a murderer. And Jesus said, if you wanted to do it in your head, you've done it. The intentions of your head, the intentions of your heart, you're guilty. Let's go a step further. James 4 says friendship with the world is enmity. It's hatred towards God. It's that serious. Sin is that serious. Colossians 1.21 says that my sin is hatred towards God. And Jesus says if you've hated in your heart, You've had murderous, intense, and, and murderous intentions. You see, sin is cosmic murder, to put it one way. The one who hates in his heart is a murderer by his murderous thoughts. And every time I want my way, every time I want what I want and not what God wants, I've got a problem. What's the problem? God is on the throne and he is sovereign and he has set up decrees and every time that I say God, I want that, I got to do something with that king. And you don't just sit on the bench with a king. You go through the Old Testament, what do you do with a king if you don't want him? You kill him. And that's what sin is. And that is why God has every right to demand blood because that is what it takes for justice to be served. And this is why Jesus had to die a bloody death, because he was a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for what I deserved on our behalf. Matthew 26 through 27, Jesus says, This is my blood, shed for many for the remission of sin. And I can't think of a better illustration than Barabbas. A a condemned murder, waiting for his time to die, for justice to be served, and a man steps up, and he hangs on the cross in the place of Barabbas, and he hangs on the cross in the place of me, in the place of you. Isn't the atonement amazing? Do you not love what Jesus has done, and do you not love Jesus? Jesus? Let's move on to the second thing. Leviticus one six. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Leviticus four, eleven and twelve describes the sin offering like this. The first thing you do if you take once the animal is has been killed and his blood has been collected is you take the skin off the animal, you take the hide off the animal, and you cut them into parts. You take them outside the city to be burned up on the ground. You see, the, the hide and what you see, all the things that are visible, they're not burned in a holy place. They're not burned in the temple. They're not even burned in the city. They're taken outside, and they're, they're burned, and they're put where the ashes are, where the things are that you don't want, outside the city. You see, we're reminded here that the cross was a scandal, a scandal. It was a shame. Specifically, the Bible says it was a curse and a disgrace. This is what Jesus, this is what we saw, what man saw as they watched Christ carry that cross outside the city. They saw a shameful scandal. Psalms 22.7 says, All those who see me ridicule me. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me down to the dust of death, down to the ashes. Christ was brought. He was whipped and flogged and spit upon and forced to the point of exhaustion to carry a cross, a crown of thorns, his side was pierced. He was nailed to the cross, naked to die. On so many levels, Jesus was disfigured and shamed. He was a curse. He died a scandalous death as a criminal. Isaiah fifty three twelve says he was numbered among the transgressors. Out where the outlaws were, and the crooks, and the thieves, and the murderers, between two other thieves. Everything visible of the animal was disfigured and taken out. Like you would take out something that you don't want any part of. Hebrews 13 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned, where? Outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let me remind you of something real quick. Do you remember who you are? (laughs) Murderers. You see, that's where we deserve to be. Outside the gate. Outside of God's grace. This is the death that we deserve. Christ dies a scandalous death in our place. You know what this makes Jesus? Jesus. It makes God just because justice has been served. And it makes him the justifier because it's been served onto him. Isn't the atonement amazing? Don't you just love Jesus and what He has done for you? And then lastly, and I think my favorite, we've looked at how the blood was a... Was a the blood was a substitute the body was a scandal and the blood the bowels were sacred the instructions for the bowels were as follow leviticus 3 3-5, 3 to 5 3 14 through 16 leviticus 4 8 to 10 says that you do this with the bowels take the fat that's covering the entrails the two kidneys the fatty lobe attached to the liver remove them remove all of the bowels that God instructs, and here's what you're to do with them. You don't get them. Take them on the altar and burn them. Burn them before the Lord. And the next thing it says is, this is a sweet aroma before the Lord. That was the process. Not every time. But for several of the sacrifices, they were taken and they were burned and they were a sweet sacrifice before the Lord. What is going on? What is seen? The hide and the head and all the things that we see are taken out. But what is not seen? The bowels are placed upon the altar and burned. I was listening to a sermon as I was driving to church several months ago now in Luke 1. 77 and 78, about Zechariah's prophecy. And he's talking about his son, John the Baptist, who would come and talk about the coming Messiah. And he hit this verse, and it, it just drove it home for me. And it says, To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, and I underline this, through the tender mercies of our God. Do you know what tender mercies are? The word is splagnon. And splagnon can be translated bowels. You see, the remission of our sins, the tender mercies were removed by the bowels of God. The bowels were the, in ancient times, it was what represented the most violent emotions. When you were angry, you felt it here. When you were in love, You felt it here. The Hebrews, they understood the the bowels as the seat of the most tenderest of affections, especially kindness, benevolence, compassion. Everything that we say about our heart, the Hebrews would say it's here. The tender affections. You see, atonement is a demonstration of God's most violent passions. His anger towards sin See, nobody saw that on the cross. All they saw was a cursed man. But what was going on in the Godhead was the tender mercies, the splagnon of God was removing sin, his hatred towards sin and his intense love from a father and a son and a son to a father. And the son says, not my will, but your will. That is, is splagnon. And we didn't get that. It wasn't seen. It was burned up on the altar. And it was a pleasing aroma before the Lord. That's what he gets. And then there's part of the atonement that you do get. You see, sometimes the priest was able to take part of that sacrifice and Sometimes he would take a fork with two prongs and dip it into a pot and he would take that piece of meat and he would hold it up in the air and it was called a wave offering. It means it's a commemorative offering. In other words, thank you. I didn't do anything to deserve this, Lord, and you have given this to me. And Only the priest who did the sacrifice was able to take that home to his family. That's me and you. You see, part of the atonement now, the atonement is for God's glory. But we are able to feast off the atonement too. We did it this morning as we remembered at, the, at his table. A couple verses in closing I wanted to share with you of what the atonement, atonement accomplishes. Psalms 51.9 says, It blots out my transgressions as if they were erased. Psalms 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Scripture's very specific. It didn't say north and south. You know why? I'm sure you do. Because if you go north long enough, you're going to go south. And then you'll go north again. But if you go east, you will go always east. And you will never go west. And God says, As far as the east is, From the west, that's how far I've removed your sin. Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen. I love this. It says, "You have cast all my sins behind your back." He's taken my sin and he's heaved him over his shoulder. Because of the atonement, God's holiness is kept pure, because you are made pure and holy in Christ. God's justice is served. Because the Christ took the punishment. God's righteousness is proclaimed because what I rightly deserved, what God rightly demanded, Christ fully fulfills. His just wrath is poured out, but not on you, on his son. His mercy is shown rich, incomprehensibly rich. God's character of love is fully demonstrated towards us while we were still sinning. That's why we call it grace. We don't deserve it. The angels have longed to look into what this plan would be. It was unexpected in the heavens, yet it was planned before the foundations of the earth. In the atonement, God kills his son for his glory, and he holds nothing back. Man benefits from what was not rightly his own. Like a beggar receiving eternal life, sustaining food, Yet we are no longer estranged strangers to be turned away from the table. We do not eat in separate quarters like slaves. The atonement makes those who repent and believe not slaves, but sons and daughters of God our Father. The atonement is amazing. Don't you love Jesus? The atonement inspired Charles Wesley to write the song that you wrote, that, to write the song that you sang, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Don't you just love the cross and what Christ has done for the glory of the Father? what you receive through it, Christian. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, remind us often of what you have done. Lord, give us good memories so that we can remember your son's sacrifice. Lord, I pray that our lives would be worthy of our calling. Lord, help us not to forget too quickly that we are called a peculiar people because we are bought and paid for with your Son's precious blood. Lord, thank you. We ask all these things as we remember what your Son has done for us. To to you be the glory. May the Lamb receive the praise. Do his name. Amen.